What's up, everybody, and welcome back. Uh, welcome back to the Bridging the Gap podcast. We're here with a very special guest. Uh, this is guest, like, literally, I don't really have guests on my podcast, so I'm excited to um, to have the man Victor Black on here. And, and and for those of you guys who don't know, potentially been living under a rock, if not, we're trying to get Victor's name out there anyway. We're trying to get the, the, the safer use of, of these types of things that we're going to talk about out there. And Victor's been in this game for 30-plus years, I believe. Um, he's got his own masterclass website, which is something that I've been subscribed to for the last few months and had invaluable information from and i thought this is what my listeners need to hear because i get these stupid questions in my dms all day every day i'm open about my ped use i'm open about my anabolic use and there is quite clear that there is a misunderstanding or there is some some practices that people are missing i'd like to kind of go through your thought processes your beliefs your ideologies and, and and how you've become to come around this safer use model um, and and the best practices that you believe that we we can undertake as as, as assisted users. Awesome. Um, so I you know I'll let you run with that and, and we can just delve off from there. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate I appreciate the opportunity to come on the show. I'm I'm very mindful of the fact that my awareness in the community is small. Uh, I think it's fair to say that over the last year or so, I've been slowly, slowly gaining Definitely. traction. Slowly. Um, every sure. month, more and more people seem to kind of connect to who I am and, and what I'm talking about. But um, in the spirit of understanding that a lot of people would go, I've never heard of this guy. Maybe I'll just start yeah. off with uh, explaining a little bit about my, a little more about my background, perhaps. Absolutely. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, so I'm in my mid fifties. Uh, I'm still an amateur competitive bodybuilder. I do compete at the high high end of the amateur, like the Mr. Olympia, oh, sorry, Mr. Olympia, oh my God, I wish, uh, Freudian you'd slip there, uh, the Mr. Universe type level, something mm -hmm. in the over 50s class. Um, I've been training since I was a teenager, literally, I was, you know, one of these guys with, you know, I, I grew up in the Arnold Stallone Van Damme era when, you know, yeah. men with muscles were on the screen and in, in, in front of our minds sort of thing. <laughs> um, I guess I've taken my training more seriously, quote unquote, more seriously since about 19 or 20 years old. But I, I certainly had, you know, a weight set in the backyard with, with you yeah. know, 13 years old. So, so a, a lifetime of practice. Um, I, I guess in that regard, I see myself as what I would consider to be an evidence-based practitioner. And, and what I mean by evidence-based practitioner is I'm very much interested in clinical evidence, in sports science, in applied science, um, in you know what can we learn from clinical data but i'm also very interested in practical application and anecdote and observation and i believe that you know to get the best outcomes in this domain you have to marry the two yeah. it's all well and good to stand in a, you know a white coat somewhere and pontificate about you know various you know potential mechanical pathways of hypertrophy and things like that but i believe unless you spent a significant amount of time under the bar and potentially if you're you know like if you're interested in competition whether that's powerlifting or bodybuilding that you that you get in there and compete with the, with the guys as it were yeah so i very much see myself as someone that has a foot in both of those camps a lot of people you know identify me as uh you know the, a, a ped safer use or harm reduction educator but i'm i'm I, I spent enough time training as a natural um competing as a natural to have what I consider to be a good understanding of nutrition and supplementation and training practices as well. So today we're going to talk about um, what, what I have been you know, wanting to talk about a little while to the community about, which is really what I call the evolution of enhancement. Yeah. yeah. So I, I guess a timeline uh, understanding of, you know, how we got to where we are in 2021 
lends itself to people understanding, you know, what my message is, is and, and what I'm all about. So um, is it okay if I just kind of jump into that? But any, yeah, yeah, any yeah. questions you've got, just jump in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I already feel like I'm watching a podcast of you talking, so I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm already like engaged. For anyone that doesn't watch me, if you let me go, I I, I got a pretty good monologue. So. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, so if, if at any time we're kind of uh, like I'm, I'm still on the show, make sure you cut me off. And, yeah, yeah, I'll and, jump in. No worries. Jump in. No yeah. Worries. So I guess the first thing I wanted to point out was that you know the the, the history of application of enhancement practice is nothing new. So testosterone, the 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 hormone testosterone, was synthesized in the mid 1930s time frame. Really in the kind of 50s, 60s time frame, we saw a, a ton of different derivatives of testosterone being developed by the pharmaceutical industry. They were not for our tribe. They were yeah. basically being developed for clinical practice. And it really wasn't until the kind of like what you would call the late 60s and, and 70s time frame that we started to see you know, more mainstream uptake into the, into, the, in, into the bodybuilding and strength athlete community. I'm sure there were individuals doing it earlier than that. That's fair to yeah. say, but Early like I, I, I reflect back on, you know, I, I think if you remember the, the movie Pumping Iron with Arnold Schwarzenegger yep. in it, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I don't think anyone has not watched that movie. So if you remember the heavyweight class in the Olympia, there were three guys over 200 pounds, right? Yeah. So it gives you kind of some sort of framework just on those numbers to go, you know what? It wasn't really mainstream in 1975 because guys weren't busting 200 pounds yet. You know, yeah. um, I guess what I wanted to talk a little bit about today was since the 1970s today, the, the evolution of enhancement has been through a number of different phases. And the, and the interesting thing is, I think it's probably fair to say that today we're in the era of evidence-based practitioners and evidence-based educators. Yeah, so absolutely. if we look at what's happening in the, in the natural community, so the unenhanced tribe, um, there's a there's a long list of very articulate, very intelligent, and 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 fabulous value educators. I'll, I'll just name a few guys like Dr. Brad Schoenfeld and Dr. Eric Helms and, and Dr. Scott Stevenson. You know, and 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 you know, I, yeah. I don't mean to mean leave anyone off that list, but really, if you look at what they're doing, is they're bringing the evidence that we've learned from you know. Um, applied science studies over the last 25 years and helping us to better understand how we can optimize our outcomes through training and supplementation and nutrition. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's my opinion that that body of work, that effort has been well worth the effort. If you look at how far natural bodybuilders have come in the last 20 years, particularly in areas like conditioning, it's phenomenal. Yeah. You know, completely agreed. Yeah, one, one could even argue that the level of conditioning of elite naturals is probably better than the enhanced community yeah. at the moment. Yeah, right? for, sure. The, the, for sure. They've come a very, very long way. And I think that comes down to our understanding of physiology and our understanding of nutrition and, and ju ju just a, a, a better merging of anecdote and observation with science. Mm -hmm. okay? Now, on the other side, it's fair to say that there is a a fairly large community that you know, don't, don't feel comfortable with that, you know, the, the bros, if you would like to call yep. it that. And it's also fair to say that they still probably have the numbers. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> if, if you think of that term. And, and those individuals, if you follow very carefully that community, they get a lot of stick. They, they, they get yeah. hit pretty hard at times by bros, basically with derogatory comments about like, you know, you know, you, you da, 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 you just need to eat more and lift heavy shit basically. And although, I don't disagree. I, I would say that, you know, like there's a, there's a fair story 
where you could kind of stand somewhere in the middle and listen to both camps. You're in one mm-hmm. of the criticisms that I would have of the evidence-based community day is a lot of people out there that look no better than, you know, your average gym rat sort of thing. And yet they have PhDs in, you know, how, how to create hypertrophic outcomes. And you're kind of thinking all that knowledge and you still look the same. Like you, you, yeah. you, you have to question at times. And I, I tend to take the stance of saying, look, I like to listen to both camps. I like to listen to the old school guys and yeah. I like to listen to the, to the evidence. And I like to draw my own opinions, my own inclusions based on what both of those camps have to say. Okay. Yeah. So if we were to take that as a kind of like a state of a nation of where we are within in natural training, it only makes sense on a purely logical and rational basis that you know, since the 1970s, that enhanced training practices have probably been through a, a couple of generations of, you know, or iterations of, of, of use development. Yeah. Okay. So if, if I can just take a, a minute to describe what they are, in my opinion, then we can get into the, the nuts and bolts of, so, so where is the current yeah. state of play? Mm-hmm. So what did the 1970s look like? If you understood the 1970s, a lot of people look back on that with rose-colored glasses and they'll say really positive things like, you know, they knew what they were doing and they didn't take very much drugs. But the truth is, is that you know, it was very much a period of like, we didn't really know what worked. Yeah. In fact, yeah. I would argue you were up against a deliberate, uh, intentional propaganda machine of denial, where if you look at some of the studies that were done in that time frame, they were, I mean, you have to look at them. And I'm not, I'm not saying I have any evidence to support this, but you have to ask the question why. There was, for example, you know, studies going on where they were giving women 1,200 milligrams a week of primabolin, where they were giving women 1,050 milligrams a week of Mastron to understand their tolerance towards these drugs for you know, efficacy and safety trials in, in estrogen-mediated breast cancer. And in the same breath, there were trials going on with men to determine whether or not these drugs had performance-enhancing effects where they were giving them 140 milligrams a week. And yeah. you just have to sit there and go, that doesn't fucking make any sense. <laughs> like, w- what's going on there? And if you speak to anyone with credibility, I, I literally had a podcast yesterday with a, with a doctor who was around at the time in the Olympic scene, and he freely admits it was, it was propaganda. They were deliberately and intentionally trying to play down the fact that these things worked. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say the 1970s timeframe was very much, you know, experimenting with things to see quote unquote what worked and what didn't work. Yeah. yeah. And this is where I start to get myself into hot water with people because I will say things that I think if you listen carefully to what I say, it's true. There's guys like Tom Platts. So Tom Platts, in my opinion, is one of the most intelligent, most articulate, most passionate guys that this industry has ever had the pleasure of you know, being a member of our tribe. Yeah? Mm-hmm. But some of the things he was doing in his personal drug use, you wouldn't do today. Yeah. And we wouldn't do them because we just know better. I mean, I'll give yeah. you a simple example. One of the practices they used to do was they would taper down dosages at the end of a cycle, hoping that as they use less and less androgens, that the HPTA would restart itself. You know, and, yeah. and of course, we know today, <laughs> until compounds reach non-suppressive levels, nothing happens. Yeah. So you basically get to the wall, you stop, you remove the suppressive compound, and you allow the HPTA to start. The whole premise of tapering down over a month is achieves absolutely nothing. Yeah. You're in. So <laughs> this was a common practice in the 70s, and the reason I pointed out was I'm not critical of it. It's what was done because that was we just didn't understand what we were doing. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. For sure. 
And then the 1980s time frame was a time frame where we started looking at more what I would call ancillaries like uh, insulin and, and growth hormone kind of first appeared on the scene during that time frame. And of course, you know, the synergy of these compounds meant we took a surge forward in, in terms of physique development from just using anabolic steroids to be able to access these, these new tools. That was an interesting time. And I think it's fair to say that we probably reached the zenith of understanding quote, quote, what works in the 90s. Mm -hmm. In fact, one could probably fairly easily argue that the 90s was the, was the peak era of physique development in, in competitive bodybuilding with the guys of that time frame were as muscular and as conditioned as, yeah. as anyone today. So I, I, I don't think that we've actually figured out too much more about quote unquote what works since the 90s. Yeah. yeah? But I think it's also fair to say that even in the 90s, when you listen to guys talk about the 90s, then we've had the privilege of listening to Ronnie Coleman talk about his personal <laughs> drug use. But I mean, he's probably the greatest bodybuilder that ever lived, but he, it, he's, he didn't get there because of his understanding of enhancement practice. Let's just say that. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I've genetics, heard a few quotes from him as well. Yeah. Genetics and hard work got Ronnie where he is. You know, and, yeah. and obviously drug use is on the table, but it wasn't his sophistication of the use of these tools. Let's just say it that way. It was yeah. agricultural at best. Yeah. yeah. Um, for sure. So I think that, that the evolution is interesting. 70s was experimental. 80s was the introduction of ancillaries. 90, we probably reached the zenith of, you know, this works. Now, yeah. mm -hmm. I would argue that it's since the 2000 era, like in the last 20 years, that we've started to get the evidence that we need to move past what works and start moving into what I would call safer use models. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of really where I kind of kick in with my information. There are quite bluntly, a lot of guys that are still doing what was done in the nineties. Um, you know, maybe, what? you know, a little bit trapped in the nineties saying, well, you know, that was the Zenith and they knew what they were doing and unquestionably they did. But if you understand some of the practices, there were a lot of things going on there that I would question. People said they didn't use as much drugs. You know, I, I have long argued that's not true because, you know, I think people have used moderate dosages. You know, I think people have used abusive dosages right out the gate from day one. 100%. I think some of the things that they were doing in the 90s, though, I don't support. I think that the overuse of diuretics in competition was rife. There were a lot of people that were addicted to drugs like Nubane, which was a pain, you know, pain medication, sort of basically. You know, so there was a lot of things that were going on that I would describe as highly effective, but not necessarily in our best interest. If that, if, if that makes sense. Now, yeah, yeah. I say that, and you have to understand there's a wall of people coming at me going, how fucking dare you? You're like, yeah, this, this is just That's the, the issue with it. That's the issue with it. It's breaking this down is, that wall. This is where I live. You know, I, I live in this thing where yeah. the guys from the 70s don't like what I'm saying. The guys from the 90s don't like what I'm saying. But the truth is, is if you, if you translate this conversation into natural training and you talk yeah. about supplementation, you have to understand, I grew up in the period where you know, you would walk into a supplement store and everything you picked up was a lie. Yeah. I mean, this is bullshit. Like that doesn't work. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. I, I probably paid for a house with things that don't work. You know, I mean? it was just how <laughs> it was back then. You know, I mean? yeah. now thanks to educational providers today, we are so much better equipped about, you know, what, where we should spend our money on supplementation. I think we're just a world away from where we were in the nineties. And this is what I'm trying to explain to people. My conversation's not about works. We yeah. already know that works. 
I'm mm-hmm. trying to get people to understand and ask the questions like, well, is there plausibly a safer model? Now, mm-hmm. why would that matter? Probably for a few reasons. The first being that I think it's fair to say that more people than ever are exposing themselves to these drugs. Yep. There was a time when only really serious trainers took steroids and enhancement practices. Today, mm-hmm. it's become, you know, we even use the term performance and image enhancing drugs yeah. to reflect the fact that, you know, it's not even enhancement, it's image, image yeah, enhancement. Entirely for a yep. lot of people, for sure. And also, I think it's fair to say that the age or the duration of exposure has grown massively, like massively, mm-hmm. massively. You know, 1975, and, and I don't say this to be conceited, it's just a statement of fact. If I was competing in 1975, I would have been fourth in the Olympia. Why? Because there were three competitors. Right? <laughs> the point being is that, you know, the, the, the number of people that are using these drugs have exposed, you know, increased exponentially. Mm-hmm. And there are guys in their 50s doing these things like I am. Right now, yeah. historically, people would expose themselves for five, six, seven, maybe 10 years, and they would retire. And that was basically it. Mm-hmm. Today, I think it's fair to say that you have recreational users using drugs for 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, you know, and, and, and. And I think it's just a rational, logical thing to say, look, if, if that's you, if you're a recreational user, if you're not making bank, if you're not a world-class elite athlete, and what you're doing, you love to do, and you want to do it for the next 35 years, maybe the models that were used in the 90s, which were all about maximum outcome, are yeah. not the right models to follow. If I could show you a model that said, look, I can give you 80% of the return, you know, and half the risk, would you be interested yeah. in hearing it? Now, immediately that separates the audience because there are some people out there that would say, no, I, I won't accept 80%. I want the hundred percent. And that's not my audience. For sure. Yeah, I understand my, that. my audience are the guys that are saying, yeah, I, I understand you can't do what these guys did for 25 years. The bill yeah. will come to you. Yeah. So I'm all ears, Victor, t- tell me about these models. T- tell me how they work. And this is kind of brings us to, to where we are today and, and the conversations that we're having with the community about you know, drug selection, compound selection, dosage selection, how, how we you know, cycle on, how we cycle off, you know, what we avoid, what we embrace. It's, this is, I guess, uh, the, the evolution of enhancement, what's, what's led us to this threshold point today. Now, um, I don't want to compare myself to these guys like Brad Schoenfeld and Eric Helms. I'm certainly not in that caliber of academic I speak, in my opinion, with the voice of experience, the guy that's been you know, at, at this grind for 35 years and seen guys come and seen guys go and learned lots of lessons along the way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. No, that's, 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 that's a great kind of intro as to kind of where we are right now. And I think mm. the penny drops when you kind of make it very clear that like we have spent the last 25, 30 years maximizing, improving, making it as efficient as possible in terms of natural bodybuilding. What's the best mm-hmm. supplements? We've got years and years of, of data on, on things now. And why wouldn't you do that for, you know, something that's going to perform as much? It doesn't make any sense why, the, why yeah. that same paradigm doesn't directly transfer into enhanced yeah. training. You know, why why yeah. would it not? Is the, yeah. the, the question is, you're going to have to convince me why would it not as opposed to why would it? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I think I think also the people who are who are potentially stuck in the bro the bro mindset with drugs are probably on the side of evidence based nutrition and training. You know, they're you know they're probably going forward with that, but not. You know, with, the, with the, the irony side. is, I would argue 
very few of the bros today haven't picked up something from that camp. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, okay. very few of them are so shut off that they haven't taken on something. You know, yeah. now to the the magnitude of immersion varies from a little bit to like like I'm 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 all in. Do you mean? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. and I well, I would say that it's fair to say that that's true in the enhanced tribe as well. There are some guys that are all in, and there are some guys that are standing on the edge saying, mm, I'm, "I'm kind of interested in what you have to say a little bit," and they got half an ear cocked, and there are guys throwing sticks and stones, and you know you know, telling me to fuck off basically, which I completely understand. You know, I'm, how dare I step in there and, and tell you, you know, what Tom Platts was doing, you know, is maybe yeah. there's a better way of doing things because he's Tom Platts. You know? I'm not yeah, critical of, of Tom. I think Tom's just a fabulous resource and, and a legend to the sport, but we knew what we knew in 1970 and 1980. And the evidence that we have to make decisions with today is just, it's, it's different information to make decisions from. Yeah. No, that makes that makes complete sense. Um, so maybe like let's just talk about a little bit how let's say your you know your uh, your uh, cycle protocol would would differ from from the eighties or nineties. I mean, in my head, I immediately go right. What does someone say to start with? Five hundred milligrams of testosterone. Yep. You know, and pe- people's argument is if you're going to switch off your HP HPT HPT access, then then why wouldn't you do five hundred rather than just two hundred? You know, and sure. and and maybe why do, why does yours differ from from what the bros would say? So I would even say that the 1970s was probably the era pre-testosterone. It was, you know, yeah, very yeah. much dominated by, you know, anabolics Oral. like D-Bol and, yeah. you know, uh, you know, other oral steroids were very popular. You know, guys, you know, very common, you know, cycles were nandrolone only cycles or you know, nandrolone and D-Bol or nandrolone and Prima Bolin. I mean, you know, unless you knew the man personally, I don't think you have the right to say who did what, but I think it's fair to say that, you know, lots of people, uh, repeat the, the 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 discussion that you know Arnold was a famous you know prima bolin and D-ball guy. Now yeah. I've no idea if that's true or not. I've never met the man. I've never spoken to him. But I think it's repeated often enough to probably say there's probably some smoke there. Doing yeah, that's yeah, probably true. true. So so the 1970s I wouldn't even say were testosterone based. It was you know testosterone based derivatives. You know, yeah. And uh, I think it's fair to say that in the 90s as uh, aromatized inhibitors and tamoxifen and different serms came onto the market, the popularity of using testosterone kind of grew, grew, grew yeah. into that space. But, but if I was to say in an overall sense, a lot of people confuse my cycle design is basically just saying, look, less. And, and I'm not arguing yeah. there's not less on the <laughs> table, but that's not what I'm about. What I'm saying is, listen, um, let's begin the discussion with cycle design on needs-based Yep. I would like to understand who you are as a genetically unique individual, how old you are in training age, you know, and what, what goals that you have realized to date, what are your next series of goals? What are your long-term goals? Are you going to be retiring in two years and not using these drugs anymore? Yeah. Is this a lifelong you know, journey for you? Are you a spying professional trying to make bank? Are you a pure hobbyist? You, who you are and what your goals are is where the conversation begins. Yeah. Exactly. We're literally 45 seconds into a criteria before you even pick a, pick a drug, right? Whereas we're in this life where it's like, it's blanket. It's a blanket cycle. And you just like, I shit you not. The other day I was talking on probably the biggest bodybuilding forum in the world. And someone made a comment about one of the guys I'm training, looked at a photograph and started recommending a cycle. And I'm just kind of like, dude, you've never met the man, you know, nothing about him, but you know what drugs he needs. And it's just, it's ludicrous like this, but this is, I'm empathetic because this is our history. Like this is, this is the way things are done. People have forever 
mimicked what Tom did or what, you know, yeah. I, I heard such and such did this. So therefore I'm going to, I'm going to mimic that. And I'm as guilty as anyone. I used to buy the magazines and I used to read what, you know, like Ronnie used to, used to I, you know, I would literally set for set copy Dorian Yates' training programs out of the magazines. I'm not yeah, Dorian yeah. Yates. You know, <laughs> I don't aspire to be Dorian Yates. I certainly don't have his talent. So why would I be, you know, mimicking what he, what his behaviors are in terms of training volume or, or intensity loading patterns or anything else like that. It makes no sense from a training point of view. It makes no sense from enhancement. So you begin the conversation with let's understand who Josh is, right? <laughs> let's understand where he's come from. Let's understand his personal exposure to these tools to date. Let's understand where he's going. And then based on that, we can start to put a, a model together based on what I simply refer to as need. Okay. Yep. Now, the needs of a bodybuilder and the needs of a powerlifter are obviously different, but I would argue the needs of a 25-year-old aspiring professional are also different to someone that says, look, I, I don't have the genetics to cut it in that. I'm just like my training and I want to do this when I'm 70. You know what I mean? They're yeah. different needs. You, saw, you, you would plan the strategic future for those individuals completely differently. Yep. Yeah. What I would argue is most people historically have done nothing more than this and said, look, there are about eight different metabolic pathways that in theory we could modulate in 2021 through different tools, but I'm just going to pick up, you know, the sledgehammer that's called anabolic steroids. I'm going to pound as hard as I fucking can on the androgen yeah. receptor until something breaks. That's most people's cycle design. They, they would equate the use of, you know, growth hormone as, you know, that's for advanced trainers and even advanced yeah. trainers sometimes besmirch that they'll say, Oh, you're just a beginner. You don't need these tools. And, and I would argue that the best logical, rational and safest model that you could probably pick would be saying, first, let's identify your needs. And then potentially let's identify what pathways that we have the capability of modulating through artificial means. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then let's start to modulate those very, very moderately. Let's elevate androgens to some degree. Let's elevate IGF-1 growth hormone to some degree. Let's look at fuel supply efficiency discussions through insulin and, and, and various other metabolic pathways. But there's no logical, rational reason that says you need to do what most people do, which is you start off at 600 milligrams of test. Yeah. Over the next two years, you take more and more and more steroids until you get to the point where you feel guilty because you're taking three grams a week. And yeah. so you start then taking growth hormone and you take as much growth hormone as you can afford. The, the, the consideration for most people's growth hormone is what can I afford? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you cap out at you know, in six or eight units or whatever you can afford, then you begin the application of insulin. Like the, the, the entire you know, model of walking into design is just like, it's, it's completely, I, I, there's no rational logic to it beyond it works. Yeah. No one's saying it doesn't work. What, what I'm suggesting yeah. is that in 2021, we could probably sit down and come up with a, a more, you know, strategic and more surgical, you know, uh, strategy to meet people's needs. Now, I, before I go on, let me just point out the, the downside to this because anybody that, you know, like, gets on their soapbox and talks about something, you know, one, one of my pet peeves is not being completely transparent and, and saying, well, what's the downside to that model? And I, yeah. and I think it's important you understand that. So the downside to a model of that means that you need to be better educated. You need yeah. to know more. Okay. Mm -hmm. Taking, you know, a hundred milligrams of D bowl a day is not exact. There's not a lot to know. <laughs> okay? yeah. It's pretty simple, right? Yeah, but if sure. you start modulating six, seven different pathways at once, 
this logically means you need to know more. You need to be better informed. And that means that the amount of time that you spend learning about this is going to probably be a lot more than, you know, your average bro wants to put in. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that would by definition mean more moving parts. So there's more to juggle Mm -hmm. and it would without question, no question, it would mean more money. Okay. If someone says to me like, okay, so I have, like the, I have no budget for anything like that. You have to understand testosterone and nandrolone are dirt cheap. They cost virtually nothing. The cost of yeah. testosterone at super physiological levels, the cost of nandrolone at super physiological levels is, is pennies. Nothing. In fact, bucks a month less. Th- there's, a, less. There's, a, there's a Dante Trudell was famous for writing a, a cycle methodology called cycles for pennies. And it was literally, that was how do you get the largest amount of bang for your buck during, <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's fair to say it's a very agricultural cycle. I don't support the cycle. I don't recommend the cycle, but it was where we were at in you know, 2003 yeah. or whenever he wrote that, 2001, I can't remember. The point being is to follow this model, you're going to have to learn more. You're going to have to juggle mm-hmm. more parts and it's going to cost you more money. No question For about sure. that whatsoever. Now, some people are going to say, well, I don't know whether I want to do that. I just want to take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And I have no problem with that. I tend to... Um, you know, I, I have an audience that follows me that says, look, I'm a pretty serious recreational trainer, you know, yeah. or, you know, I, I'm, I'm on the border of, you know, recreational amateur competitive professional, you know, um, a lot, a lot of my clients are coaches because they, they are willing to learn. They, yeah. They're willing to put the time in. They say, look, you know, don't worry about the hours that I need to put in learning. I'm, I'm here to learn. So, yeah. you know, that would be the, the downside to this model. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think one thing for me that played on my head when I, because um, obviously I'm a competitor, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be the best in the world. That's, that's my goal at the moment. Mm-hmm. So I, I appreciate I'm going to have to push things at once. And, and when I started kind of adopting this, whatever, multifaceted approach, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, my, the question that rang in my head was, I appreciate that I'm doing it safer, but am I missing out on something? Am I missing out on some extra gains? Am I missing out on... on I'll on answer getting, that question. It's really easy to answer. If you are if you're if you're doing just anabolic steroids and you're simply modulating the androgen receptor, okay. Mm-hmm. So let me let me be technically correct because I, I I like to be historically correct. Someone's going to watch yeah. this in ten years and say <laughs> ah, but blah blah blah. So so I'm not sure whether yourself you're, you're probably aware of this, but anabolic steroids or androgens have a number of different mechanisms of action. One is directly by the androgen receptor itself, which is what we call classic genomic pathways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we have the non-classic genomic pathways, which are basically not directly via the cell-located androgen receptor, but it's via other pathways like membrane-located androgen receptors and, and, and via other, other direct pathways. So if you just consider the, the most simplest discussion, say anabolic steroids are ligands to the androgen receptor, they bind with the androgen receptor and they cause downstream gene transcription, right? If you, if you just look mm-hmm. at that, that is one of eight plausible different metabolic pathways that we have the power to modulate now if you were to take the model that said no well i'm going to kind of pull back a little bit on that i'm not going to smash on that too hard because i'm spending money and time modulating the other seven as well and if you said well am i missing out on that it's really simple if you take those eight pathways and you turn the volume up to 100 percent, you're probably going to kick the shit out of the guy who's just doing steroids you understand what i'm saying the question is then okay so if you modulate all the pathways that you can modulate at the absolute maximum return, that is the absolute maximum return. 
This yeah. is what I, I, I have denialists basically say, yeah, but you'll never get to such and such. I say, you'll never get to such and such on the doses that I use. But there's yeah. no reason that if you have a greater risk profile on me that you cannot follow mm -hmm. in these footsteps, mm -hmm. but just turn the volume up a little harder across, yeah. across each of these different pathways. And if you do that, I will give you a guarantee that you're going to you know, exceed the outcomes of someone who's only modulating one of those pathways to abusive levels. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. Um, do you want to talk about the, the pathways? Do you want to talk about them, or are they a little bit complicated? No, I'm more than happy to talk about. I, I think, I think what, I think most people would be familiar with the first one, which is the androgen receptor, and yeah. then of course we consider the non-classical genomic pathway as a secondary pathway. This is interesting because there are certain testosterone derivatives that tend to bias themselves more towards cell-located androgen receptor membrane, for example. Mm -hmm. Now that might not be a good idea and it's probably outside the scope of today's discussion but it is fair to say that um drugs that tend to you know uh drugs like debol for example you know that they are shown to have a preference or a bias towards you know membrane located androgen receptors and there's but some potential you know toxicities associated with that yeah. pathway okay mm -hmm. but it's enough in this instance to know okay so the first is the classic genomic path way the second is the is the is the non-classic if we if we just say those two yep mm -hmm. you can't really control you know where you send the androgens beyond compound selection okay okay compound selection determines which of those pathways the androgens take but all androgens activate both classic and non-classic it's to what magnitude are they bias towards one yep. mm -hmm. and then <clears throat> i would say one of the massively misunderstood and undervalued pathways is the uh, via the the estrogen receptor itself? It's it's very well understood that people that overly suppress estrogen are missing out on returns. Yeah. Okay. This is very 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 clear in in and yeah. it's held in, in in good quality evidence. You know, in, for sure. So people that overly suppress estrogen are, are, are inhibiting hypertrophic response because of their actions. So yeah. how you manage estrogen. And the way that you go about estrogen modulation is potentially something that can add to your progress or inhibit your progress. And my recommendation generally is that you start off with a drug testosterone and you take as much testosterone as you as a genetically unique individual can tolerate without mm -hmm. needing a DHT blocker, without needing an AI or a CIRM. And when you reach that threshold, you bring in a secondary drug, ideally one that does not continue to add more estrogen or more DHT, which sure. the obvious choice is a DHT-based derivative, and you can tend to add to your anabolic potential load without adding more estrogen to the table. So by doing that model, you're fulfilling the classic genomic pathway, the non-classic genomic pathway, and the androgen, uh, sorry, and the estrogen receptor pathway itself. Don't, in, don't massively attenuate or inhibit estrogen. It is a hypertrophic pathway in its own right. Sure. Yep. And, and then potentially just just for the just for the listeners when they're when you say use testosterone try and find your your genetic tolerance find mm -hmm. out where where you you your unique tolerance is i guess they're looking out for estrogenic related side effects so maybe high blood pressure yeah the, 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 the great challenge pressure. though is and this is where i get myself in a, a lot of the symptoms that people associate with estrogen are not estrogen related at all okay. so i'll give you an example so um most people would basically associate water retention as an estrogenic side effect. You know? mm -hmm. But if you understand what causes water retention, it's the elevation of the effector molecule, the RAS system called angiotensin II. When you elevate angiotensin II, okay. you elevate the, the hormone aldosterone. 
And anyone that knows what aldosterone does, it means you retain water. This yeah. is the pathway through which you retain water through the use of growth hormone. So when we use growth hormone and we retain water, that's not estrogen that's causing that. That's aldosterone. aldosterone. And when we use anabolic steroids, what happens is aldosterone is elevated. The elevation of aldosterone is basically... So by using an angiotensin II receptor blocker like telemosartan or one of the yeah. other seven ARBs, most people that introduce an ARB go... Holy shit! Like I thought, that was estrogen. That's actually yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. that's angiotensin two that's causing that. So now, okay. don't get me wrong. If you keep pushing estrogen up and up and up and up, right? There's no question that estrogen has a has a water retention, you know, uh, stimulatory input. No question at all. But not at the at the amount. Like so, for example, I want to say take as much testosterone as you can tolerate. My tolerance levels for testosterone without nai without any other drugs on the table I, I tend to tolerate about 300 milligrams a week a little more than yeah. that right now about the, the, the amount of testosterone that is metabolized into estradiol right at that dose right is not water retentive in the absence of angiotensin 2 it's not enough estrogen for you to be walking around like a puffball yeah okay okay no. so yes i do agree for guys that are using two grams of testosterone you're in this is yeah. a factor, but that's an awful lot of testosterone. For sure. Yeah. So at moderate dose of testosterone, more, most water reten most of the water retentive effect that you see in moderate use of testosterone is consequential to the elevation of angiotensin two, which in turn elevates aldosterone. The same uh, mechanical pathway that's responsible for water retention through growth hormone use. Now, when you put testosterone, estrogen. And growth hormone together on the same table, you tend to have a kind of like a situation where you go, yeah, I, I'm holding some water, but you can modulate or you can manage that effect by blocking of the angiotensin with two pathway. Uh, okay. So just for anyone watching, we got cut off then. So there's a little bit of a it in that sort of thing. Let me, maybe, let me throw up a, a, a graphic. I actually have a, um, a graphic that I like to use to uh, show people the rationale behind my cycle design methodology so let me just throw this up and cover up my talking head for a bit so if we if we look at this from the point of view of like these uh this hub so we have a, a baseline testosterone hub so this is what i was saying as much testosterone as you can tolerate as a genetically unique individual for me that's about 300 milligrams a week i think that 300 milligrams a week is a very tolerable amount of testosterone particularly in the context of understanding that Today, there are millions of men using 200 milligrams a week under the, you know, under the, the, the model of TRT, HRT, yeah. as it were. You're in. I don't so would you say, would, sorry, would you just say that people should start at 300 in order to find their tolerance or start at 200? And no, typically what I would say, it, it, it depends on how much experience you've got. If, if this was like your first year of exposure, I would yeah. al always recommend that you start at what would be considered to be the clinical effective dose and titrate, to, titrate for effect. Yeah, okay. yeah. Cool. I've been doing this so long, and you've been doing this so long. You just go straight to three hundred. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. I'm not going to be buffering around going from one fifty to two hundred, two fifty. But I do that with clients who, if this is their like their inexperienced clients, novices, we'll call them that. Yeah, yep. that makes sense. So if we have testosterone out, this is going to be again. Lots of people like get their knickers in the twist, and they understand this. If you understand that there is an abundance of evidence in rat models that talks about the mitrophic androgenic ratio of various of various uh, testosterone derivatives. And, you know, this particular drug is more anabolic than that particular drug. You know, this has been used as a, you know, a, a compound selection discussion for 
25 years, you know, I heard that, you know, in Trembolone is five times more, you know, anabolic than testosterone or whatever like that. Of course, we know that that's complete and utter rubbish. But anyway, there are rodent yeah. models that basically would a- a- allocate myotrophic to androgenic ratios that exceed testosterone in rat models. And I don't have a problem with that. The reality, though, is anyone that spent any time in the trenches will appreciate the fact that if you take 300 milligrams of testosterone and you take 300 milligrams of anavar a week, despite the fact that the rat models say, right, you don't grow any faster, right? So almost all anabolic steroid derivatives accrete protein at approximately the same rate, approximately. I don't have any problem with saying, look, you know, we could in theory measure some differential, but they're approximately the same. No one has ever, you know, done a nandrolone Biot cycle because it is supposedly more anabolic and smashed everybody on the stage because nandrolone is more anabolic than testosterone. What rubbish. They all accrete protein at an, at a level of that approximates equal efficiency. Okay. So mm-hmm. therefore the drug that you choose to put on the table next, there's lots of scope for personal preference. Some guys like Primabol and some guys like Masteron, some guys like nandrolone, some guys like Anavar. You're in, I would suggest that you try them all because there's a very good likelihood that as a genetically unique individual, one of those drugs might speak to you. Yeah. yeah? But this idea that, you know, this drug or that drug is more anabolic, you know, it's just rubbish. So in other words, we have a protein accretion need via, you know, the gene transcription pathway of the androgen receptor. Then there's the, uh, what we call the, uh, the androgen receptor, sorry, the estrogen receptor beta gene transcription that we spoke about. Then there's the capacity for various drugs to have antibiotic, anti-catabolic action. Trembolone is the standout in this regard. A lot of people do not understand why Trembolone is such an effective growth promotion tool. And that is because it has a unique relationship with the glucocorticoid receptor. It is, mm-hmm. you know, effectively, if I use an analogy, if you were to basically say, look, there's two ways to, to save money, put money in the bank. One is to make more money, protein accretion. The other is to save more money, minimize muscle protein breakdown, right? But the magic happens is when you do both at the same time. Now, the mm-hmm. reason Trembolone works so well, it is unique amongst most of the anabolic steroids in so much as that it's really basically contributing to muscle tissue uh, acquisition through minimizing muscle protein breakdown. Okay. So when you come at the conversation from both ends, something that's increasing muscle protein synthesis, something that's increasing muscle protein or, or minimizing muscle protein breakdown, you have a one plus one equals three synergy. It's the first synergy there is. So yeah. most anabolic steroids, all of them, all of them have something to add to anti-catabolic action, but Trembolone is, is kind of special in that regard. So this is a pathway. I mean, obviously we have, you know, the IGF-1 uh, insulin pathways these are pathways we spoke about before um there's obviously then consideration beyond protein accretion when we start to talk about so what else do these anabolic steroids do and i would argue that's really the reason that you would choose one compound over another and that is so outside of just protein accretion what does it do that separates itself from other drugs and the easiest Mm -hmm. one to answer there is for people that are familiar with the concept of mechanical response. In other words, you know, you get a certain stimulation of the central nervous system versus certain drugs. And this is why power lifters like to use drugs like halotestin and, you know, yeah. superdrol and things like that. They, they stimulate the central nervous system. 
in general, DHT derivatives tend to do very well at this, yeah, in general. Now, we haven't gotten to the safer use model yet. We're just talking about the premise of, you know, putting it. So again, if you were to look at something like ment, right, you'd say, okay, so someone will ask me, what, what do you think about ment, Victor? I would say, well, tell me what need you have to fulfill and why you feel that net meant would fulfill that need and as long as you can describe to me what that need is i don't have a problem with it but most people can't they're, they're coming from the point of view of i heard it's the strongest anabolic there is that's yeah. that's their interest you're in and yeah. this is where for years and years and years people basically held trembolone up as the most powerful anabolic is not understanding that is in reality a steroidal psalm and to get the most out of trembolone you only need a very small amount because you just need to cover the back door. Trembolone covers the back door really nicely at small amounts and you minimize most of the negative consequences of use. Yes, of course, if you add more and more of more of it, it's an androgen, it binds with the androgen receptor, it causes gene transcriptions. I'm not saying it doesn't work. What I'm saying though is the thing that's unique about Trembolone is it covers the back door. It minimizes muscle protein breakdown. But to do that, you only need a relatively small amount of the drug, which means we can balance what we get from it against the negative consequence of use of that drug. Okay. So then we get into things like fuel supply efficiency discussions, we, which is really you know, around 100, 150 milligrams. Uh, so, so I would argue as a general rule of thumb, you should take the clinical dose of these drugs and two exit. So what I mean by that is, yeah. If you accept the fact that testosterone is given to millions of men at 200 milligrams a week now, I don't think 400 milligrams a week for our tribe is outrageous. Yep. Okay. If you look at Anavar, 20 milligrams a week is the clinical dose. I think 40 milligrams a day is, sorry, sorry, 20 milligrams a day is the clinical dose. I don't think 40 is outrageous. I don't think you need to take 80 milligrams. Yeah. So as you go down the list and you go, okay, so how much Masteron did they give women for, for estrogen-mediated breast cancer? They gave them 300 milligrams a week. So we could probably use 600. How much did mm -hmm. they use Suprema Bolin? 400 milligrams a week. So 800 is not outrageous. So it's the 2X yeah. rule. Now, what yeah. most people don't understand about Trembolone is when it was in human clinical use, it was given to women and the elderly for treatment indications like osteoporosis. And it was given to people at 50 milligrams a week, okay? Mm -hmm. 76 milligrams, three vials in a box, uh, one vial administered every 10 days, so 50 milligrams a week. So the 2X rule is, surprise, surprise, 100 milligrams a week. And people say, but it won't do anything 100 milligrams a week. You have, to understand, you have to wind backwards and listen to what I said. The clinical dose was 50 milligrams a week. It does something at 50, right? So let's 2X it, yeah? Where do you hear people say, 300 milligrams a week of trembolone yeah, is, is a little bit. You have to understand that 6X. Yeah. So imagine if someone said to you, look, I'm taking 1,200 milligrams a week of testosterone. That's just a little bit. You go, you idiot. That's not a little bit. You're in. Yeah. 6X of the clinical dose is not a little bit. 2X is moderate use. Moderate mm -hmm. use. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if we consider that a pathway, and then we look at fuel supply efficiency discussions, which was really about the various insulin analogs, so Lantus and Humalog and the, 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 the basal and rapid-acting insulin, insulin sensitizers, obviously, you know, uh, you know what, what would be considered to be relatively benign substances like creatine monohydrate, but they certainly have a role. I like telemosartan because telemosartan is both an uh, ARB, an angioretensin uh, receptor blocker, but it's also a PPAR agonist of all three isoforms of PPAR, okay? So it is 
in effect, you know, in covering one of the pathways. Now, the one pathway left that after after you go through all this list that we would, you know, that everybody's chasing is myostatin inhibition. Yeah. Okay. So this is the great chase. Now, the irony is, is that there are many different compounds from creatine to HMB to all sorts of different things that have been identified as potential myostatin inhibitors over the years. The challenge with them has always been, yeah, but to what clinical effect? You know, can we demonstrate it's true in human beings? The irony is there are some studies in women that show when you give them an ARB that they have an improvement in body composition and the pathway through which that happens is through myostatin inhibition. Now, I'm not saying that if you gave a natural man an ARB that his improvement in lean yeah. body mass would be large enough to measure in a study, but we can see it in women. And the reason we see it in women, they tend to be exquisitely sensitive to these inputs. So mm -hmm. it's fair to say, not in rats, in human beings, the drug telemostatin and other ARBs like lorsartan have demonstrated clinical effects as myostatin inhibitors. But I completely agree to what magnitude of effect, you know, probably fairly small. But the whole premise here is this. If you're just mitigating or modulating one pathway, you need the magnitude of impact of that pathway to be truly profound. Mm -hmm. If you're touching on all of them, anything that you put on the table, even the drug clenbuterol, which is a beta-2 androgenic agonist receptor, right? This, you know, in women we know is a hypertrophic agent because they're so exquisitely sensitive to growth promotion inputs. Now, in a man, you might say, listen, if you give clenbuterol to a man, you're not going to see a hypertrophic response. And I really don't have a problem with that discussion. But I keep trying to understand, but you know, there's, there's, other, there's other pathways. <laughs> We're doing other things. Doing. It yeah. only has to contribute a little bit you're in, for it for sure. to make sense that says, look, one plus one plus one plus one plus one plus one, right, equals 16. Yeah. You're in. So this is, the, this is the methodology. This is the model. Now, where does safer use come into this? I would say two things. The dose is the poison. So how, yep. much of the, how much of these tools you put on to each pathway is going to determine the safety profile of each of these, these discussions? It's completely plausible that someone takes this model and abuses it. You turn the volume up to 11 on all these pathways, it's no safer than fucking anything else anyone's doing. You know? the, the, the safety margin is not built into the model, it's built into the dose. We effectively are using smaller amounts of these compounds because we're mitigating, or sorry, we're modulating multiple pathways for effect. Okay, yep. but if you abuse the model, you lose the safety margin. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the final thing that I would step put, put put out there on this, and that would be saying this, and that is, okay, so you know the safety the the safety thing would come like this. First, you take all of the drugs that you could potentially use, right, and you put them into two nice little piles. The first pile is drugs that have been approved for and in human clinical use for at least 10 years. Okay. I don't like research chemicals that have been abandoned by the pharmaceutical industry because they were proven to be carcinogens and things like this. I'm not a fan. Okay. Yeah. I'm not a fan of animal drugs. You know, why, why do we need to use drugs that have never been in human clinical use to, to what end, you know, you know, quote unquote, but it works, bro. I'm not, I'm not arguing it doesn't work. If you yeah. introduce an androgen that has been used in, human, in, in veterinary studies or in veterinary application, it's very likely that the androgen is going to bind to the androgen receptor and cause gene transcription. I'm concerned about the other impacts of toxicity. Okay, So if you said, right, first rule of thumb, no, an, no animal drugs, 
no abandoned research chemicals, minimum use of methylated orals, and the dose is the poison, you very quickly arrive at a point where you start going, yeah, I can see this, this, this kind of makes sense. This is a model yeah. that is based on need. It's based on rational logic. It's based on what clinical evidence do we have to suggest the efficacy and the safety of these products, not it's a rat model during like, we want to see these drugs ideally in human beings and understand the implications of toxicity in human beings. And so, you know, anyone that sits down and look at this model and understands the following caveat, I am not trying to have a conversation that says this works better. Yeah. As I go back to the original point we made in the nineties, I think in the nineties, we figured out, you know, how you get the biggest outcome you can possibly get. We figured that out a long time ago. I'm trying to explain to people, look, some of those practices may have been less than ideal, uh, effective, but perhaps not in our best interest in terms of safety profile. And hopefully people watching this can go, yeah, look, I get that, Durin. Like, obviously now the devil becomes the detail because there's a lot of people out there that could look at that and still take this model and, and put it together and, 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 and bastardize it and make a hash of it sort of thing. So okay, it's, 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 this is a first pass discussion. Obviously it's intended yeah. to be, okay, now let's break the things down and have a conversation about growth hormone, the good, the bad, the ugly. You know, and, you know what, is, what is the problem with growth hormone? What is the problem with insulin? How can we use insulin safety? How do, how do we not go into hyperglycemic state? How do we not induce insulin resistance? How do we not become a type two diabetic you know, after years yeah. of abuse, et cetera, et cetera. So, it's, it's the first pass of what becomes a somewhat more complicated conversation for those people that can connect, that connect with the story. Yeah, no, that, it makes complete sense. And as someone who connected with that story, yep. it completely uphold and changed my entire philosophy about drug usage, right? I, was, I think I was pretty lucky that I'd only been using drugs. I, I had a really good coach, so I started off pretty low and I'd yep. hardly been using drugs. But if, if I hadn't, if I hadn't found you, I would have definitely delved off into the, the different direction. And Correct. thank God this yeah. So I'd like to make one last statement. We probably like Nick should close it off because I found yeah, that yeah. people after about an hour tend to glaze over and go, oh, that was enough, yeah, right? Let me just make one last statement. And it's really important. I'm trying to get this message out to people. A lot of people do not understand this. And that is that these various testosterone derivatives actually create oxidative stress at various mm -hmm. magnitudes, right? So we would consider testosterone at moderate doses to be cognitive protective, protective of, of cognitive function, okay? Mm -hmm. Cardioprotective, principally through the estrogen that is created as a metabolite of testosterone. Estrogen provides cardiovascular health support, yeah? And kidney protective, again, you know, estrogen is basically renally protective against elevated androgens. So testosterone would be considered to be the most benign of, of the anabolic steroids we have at moderate dosages. No yeah. question about it. Once you cross that physiological barrier, oxidative stress presents, right? Mm -hmm. But it's important that people understand when you look at the other testosterone derivatives, each one of those derivatives, even though it may seem to be very similar on a chemical structure basis, is demonstrated very clearly in evidence that there are various levels of oxidative stress associated on different organs from these drugs at different levels. A simple example, um, the drug Winstrol is probably considered to be relatively benign on cognitive function. It's demonstrated to have fairly moderate you know, negative effect on, on the brain, okay? However, I'm not really a fan of Winstrol because of what it does to HDL carrier suppression. So 
I would consider that a drug yeah. to have two opposing vectors. If it was purely a discussion about cognitive protection, I would say it probably gets a pretty good tick. It's not healthy for you, but of all the choices, it's probably yeah, one yeah. of the better ones. But unfortunately, what it does to your cholesterol levels, if you subscribe to the model that lipid skewing is not something that we want to encourage, it's the worst of all the drugs in terms of lipid yeah. skewing. You know, it's, it, it's, it's devastating. So this becomes an interesting paradigm then because you have a drug that is both potentially the best drug that we can have after testosterone for our brain and potentially the worst drug that we can have for our heart, depending on what yeah. it does to lipid skewing, if that makes sense. Now, yeah, obviously, yeah, every individual is going to respond in a genetically unique way to each drug, but it's important that people understand that these drugs are not all, they're not all created equal. Various drugs have various concerns and various biases towards certain toxicities. There are seven different androgen toxicities that we need to be mindful of. And various drugs, when you stack them up, will say, okay, so that particular drug seems to bias itself. Not so good on that toxicity, but maybe better on that one. And some of them basically like a maybe not good news across the board. Now, that is a message that's very hard to get across to people. It's as hard to get across as this idea that there is not a massive myotrophic androgenic ratio difference in human beings. People struggle with it because they, have, you know, they haven't been told that. For years and years and years and years, the message has basically been that anabolic steroids are bad for you. you yeah. And so people accept the risk. But I would argue that testosterone, if you take a hypogonadal man, a man that has low testosterone, and you restore his testosterone levels to upper normal range, that is positive to every qualitative and quantitative aspect of his life. That's not bad for you. That's good for you. Yeah. But if you keep going and keep going and keep going, eventually you cross a toxicity threshold that says, now we're presenting problems. Okay. Yeah. All of the other <laughs> anabolic steroids have to be viewed through the filter of saying potential toxicity on one or more of the seven toxicity pathways right out the box right from the get-go, you know? mm -hmm. every single one. 10 milligrams of Winstrol can devastate your HDL levels. 10 milligrams of Winstrol appears to be relatively well tolerated on the human brain. So, cool. Yeah. So that's a, that's a lot of talking. I talk very fast. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I hope I haven't yeah. overwhelmed you know, people in the audience, but I guess the point is, is that you can kind of put it on half speed if you don't talk too quickly. <laughs> so... Yeah, no, that that's perfect, and like it's a good um, it's a good introduction to to Victor Black and the model, and 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 I really encourage people to just get onto get onto Victor's Instagram, get onto the masterclass as well. Like, there's mountains of knowledge, and it keeps coming in mountains yeah. as well. So that's the, the great that's irony, Josh, is a lot of a lot of people think, God, like he talks a lot, but what people don't understand is I'm not joking when I say. I've been at this for five years now, like putting information into the marketplace about safer use, and I'm not joking when I say. I've got a lot more to say than I've already said. Yeah. During, like the, the amount of information that's coming is, 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 is insane. Now I completely understand that for the average recreational lifter, it's too much. They're going yeah. like, dude, like, so my bias, I would basically say, look, if you're a coach, you need to kind of come and listen over here. Cause there's, there's yeah, yeah, educational yeah. food. If you're a recreational trainer, you need to le lean on your coach. Right. So your coach needs to be, you know, listening to what I have to say, literally yeah. on a weekly basis, 
And mm-hmm. if you're if you're a recreational trainer, you're probably going to go like, ah, that's too that's too much time, that's too much effort. I'm I have I'm I'm you know electrician or I'm a plumber or I'm a, a counselor or a lawyer, whatever you happen to be doing as a profession. But I do think for coaches, I do think for people that make a living from this space, and I do think for people that work with enhanced athletes, okay, that you need to come over and, and have a listen to what we're saying in this community. Yeah, completely agreed. Completely yeah. agreed. Um, I appreciate your time this morning or this afternoon, wherever you are. Thank you. Yeah. Um, just go, just go yeah. five o'clock here in Thailand. So. Perfect. Perfect. Good. No, thank All you right. so much. And, uh, thanks for listening, everyone. And uh, we'll, we'll be back very soon. The Victor Black Masterclass presentation is brought to you by...